0: Hello friends. I'm Jamie Kuntz and I'm Sophia Huggins and this is the first episode of Oh no, no she, she didn't. Jamie, do you do you want to introduce yourself I to do. our audience? I would
1: love to. Okay, so like I said, I'm Jamie and I am in my last year of getting my masters and my thesis and my focus is on Irish literature, specifically about awesome women playwrights during the Irish literary revival. So this what we're going to be talking about is right up my alley. And I'm Sophia,
0: and I'm a first-year PhD student who does not work in Irish literature, (laughs) but does work with awesome women writers. Yeah. My research is in 19th-century transatlantic literature, specifically focused on women writers. And so it is kind of fun to be thinking about some late 19th-century, early 20th-century women writers um, that I... Hadn't had the opportunity to read before, but I'm 100% in love with now. Because they're awesome. They are so badass, guys. Yes, they are. I guess we should probably tell you a little bit about <laughs> what we're doing here. We because- should. So this is actually a collaborative project that we are doing for one of our seminars on 20th century Irish literature.
1: We're focusing on collaboration. Our project, because Sophia and I are both two different kinds of we're both feminist scholars. That we would both, I think, we both identify ourselves as feminist Oh, scholars, yeah, obviously. that's like my primary yes. identification um, is feminist. That's so great. <laughs> but um, we both, like we said from our introductions, we both study different things, and so we were really inspired by the collaborative efforts of the women that we're studying, and we decided we wanted to kind of practice what we're studying and do a collaboration, a multimedia kind of collaboration. So we've got. This podcast, where we're just going to kind of ramble for a long time about stuff we like. And we're also having, we have a Tumblr and a Twitter page, which you guys should all follow. Yes, you definitely should. We're, oh no, she didn't, pretty much everywhere.
0: (laughs) We should probably explain explain the the name. name.
1: Okay. Okay, so in Irish mythology, the she spelled S-I-D-H-E, and they were basically the fairies. Irish mythology has some pretty badass fairy lore. And we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more about that later. When we
0: say fairies, we mean like Lord of the Rings elf
1: type people. Not like, like Tinkerbell. Yeah. So this project
0: is in the spirit of the awesome ladies we're going to be talking about. really focuses on collaboration and specifically... We like to call what we're
1: doing in this podcast collaborative reading, Mm -hmm. which uh, we're going to be reading the same things, but because Sophia and I have different slants to our research, I think it'll give us a richer reading of the material because we're both looking at it in a different way, and then we're going to talk about it, and not everybody looks at things the same way, but that doesn't mean that their particular reading is wrong, just because it's different than someone else's. Yeah. And we think that the conversational aspect of this, the
0: dialogue between the two of us, Mm -hmm. is going to be really important. And part of our project at the end is going to be thinking about the ways that what we have termed collaborative reading Mm -hmm. um, has changed the way we do our research for this project. So that's
1: kind of the nitty-gritty, I guess. Does that cover everything? I think that covers everything. Do people know what we're doing now? I think so. And when we say collaboration... It's not just between Sophia and I, and so if you guys hear something and you're like, I disagree with that, or I think I have a different opinion on it, or you just kind of want to get your voice heard, you should definitely send us a message or tweet at us, and we could start a dialogue. And so it's collaborative with everyone, not just us, because otherwise it would just be Sophia and I talking to ourselves, which... What I mean, it's now. what we do every day we just <laughs> we're doing it with
0: a microphone this time um but yeah we would love to hear from you mm-hmm. collaborate with us let's move into our first segment yes which we have titled hashtag squad goals
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: better than taylor swift squad better yeah this this squad that we're talking about this uh, irish lady dream squad oh is my gosh yes the best squad
1: yeah the women that we are focusing our discussion on today are Alice Milligan and Anna Johnston, who ran this really awesome literary journal called the Sean von Vocht. And the Sean von Vocht, for all of you listeners who don't know your Irish history and folklore, um, the Sean von Vocht is actually, that's an allusion to this symbol of Ireland, this female symbol. The Irish Sorry, I'm gonna like it on my soapbox a little bit because this is what my thesis please, part please of my get thesis on is over. Box. The Irish, um, they often had this like a el- symbol of Ireland, and they like had it. This symbol was like always pretty much female, and the Sean Vogt is just like one of those iterations, and that ba- means the poor old woman. So basically, there's this old hag-looking woman wandering around Ireland, and they're like, "Oh, oh it's the Sean Vavagh." But um, so that is a really cool name, and so they're kind of like symbolizing. Ireland in their name and being like, hey, this is what we're talking about. And uh, But anyways, the Sean von Vacht, the journal, was a monthly nationalist literary journal, and it ran from 1896 to 1899. And it was like, and it called something called an advanced nationalist paper.
0: So the Sean von Vacht, as a literary magazine, um, included a lot, of, a lot of fiction and poetry and really cool editorials by our ladies Milligan and Johnston, and they were advanced nationalist, which means that they were separatists um, and wanted complete separation from Britain, because at this time in the late 1800s, Ireland was still under British rule, and you might not think that's such a bad thing, but it was, because the British were super, super mean to the Irish. They were.
1: Um, and whenever we use the phrase nationalist, that also means they were focused on Ireland's nationalism, so they wanted... They also wanted separatism from England. So basically what they wanted is
0: for Ireland to be its own country instead of a colony, essentially, of Great Britain. And they wanted to be able to have their own state. So they're like Americans in the 1700s, but they're just like really close to Great Britain.
1: They're actually, in the Sean van Wacht, there's a poem. I'll have to find it later so we can talk about it more but there's a poem that's like to america saying yo america help us out and teach us how to do what you did (laughs) also going to be talking about alice milligan's play it
0: was a nationalist play and it is so freaking badass oh my gosh it's amazing it's kind of what inspired us to do this podcast because we wanted to share this with you guys it's really really cool it's called the last feast of the Vienna," and it's set in like way back in the day, Ireland. And it has all of this Irish mythology and all this, like, Celtic mythology that is super, super cool. And the things that Milligan is doing in this play, especially around uh, the female characters, is just really interesting and really phenomenal. And also the play is super short and fun. Mm -hmm. And there is so much shade being thrown, my friends. So much. It is a free ebook, also.
1: So you guys can read it for free. Yeah, you can find the link on our Tumblr. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the thing about ireland during the late 1800s early 1900s is there was a lot of religious divide and class divide and the cool thing about alice milligan and anna johnston is they were okay so they were they lived in belfast and that's northern ireland and so northern ireland as some of you may know is not a catholic area most of ireland is pretty pretty hardcore catholic but northern ireland not so much and also Northern Ireland is pretty much known for being unionists, is that the word, mm-hmm. or um, sympathetic to the British. They didn't, a lot of them didn't want to separate from Britain. And Alice Milligan and Anna Johnston, they both were different religions not kind of different classes, not so much as we talked about with Dr. Steele, but they but different
0: social circles,
1: definitely. Yeah. And so they kind of came together to make this journal that really promoted like anti factionalism. And you, Sophia, you talked about that more in your paper. Yeah. So do you wanna take
0: over on that? Um so I think the really cool thing about Milligan and Johnston's collaboration is that Milligan was a Methodist from an Anglo Irish family, and then Johnston was Catholic and not Anglo Irish and in especially in Belfast, these two circles did, did not, not get along. No. Like they never associate they did not go to the same parties, mm-mm, let me tell you. Mm-mm. But Milligan and Johnston were both nationalists and they became friends and then they decided to work together to really promote this idea of unity and collaboration that they thought would be really instrumental in helping the Irish nationalist cause. So that's a little bit of background on both of them. Just a couple of other facts. They were both writers in their own right. Like they were both poets and Milligan wrote a lot of fiction and like drama. Anna Johnston actually went by the pen name Ethna
1: Carberry? Ethna Carbury, yeah. At yeah, the Carberry. Which, if you read through the Sean von Vaugh, there's tons of stuff by Carberry. And it's kind of funny knowing this was actually Anna Johnson. Yeah.
0: And, uh, yeah, they were, they were both badass lady writers who decided to come together to be even more badass by creating this publication, which was super cool. And
1: but it's, it's really cool considering the fact that they had to do so much work on their own to get it. Because they, like, they wrote pretty much... All of it. And it's a good 20-page
0: Yeah, it's like around 15 to 20 pages. It's a lot of work. And Mm -hmm. they did all the work. They did. So they were super cool. And that's the end of Squad Goals. We're going to move on to the (laughs) next section. So um, Jamie is going to be a total doll. And now that we're going to start talking about The Last Feast of the Fianna, she's going to give us a little bit of a plot summary for all of those who haven't read it. And also a little bit of like a... Viewer's guide, where she breaks down (laughs) all of the Celtic mythology for us, because that there is a lot of it. There is that's basically all it is, and so she's also going to do the incredible task of trying to pronounce all of these Irish names correctly. And let me tell you, it is (laughs) difficult. Apologies Um. in advance, like for anyone who's listening and knows Irish, for the intense mispronunciation that's going to happen. Okay, so the first
1: thing we need to know about the Last Feast of the Fianna is. What the heck is a Fianna? Well, the fiana were this band of, like, really famous Irish warriors. One of the characters in the play, his name is Finn McCool, which is the, pardon my pun, coolest name ever. <laughs> um, he was the leader of the Fianna. And other characters in the play are Garanya. Who Sophia hates but I love Gráinne. I only
0: hate her in this play. Okay, so
1: some background on Finn and Gráinne since it needs it needs to be it, it needs, needs to be discussed. Me. Um so in Irish mythology Gráinne was engaged to marry the much older Finn. Like it was definitely a what is it the May December kind of wedding. Yeah, May wedding. December. Yeah. Um and so Gráinne finally met Finn and she like saw him and was kind of like, "Eh, not not really into this he's kind of old and then but instead she saw one of his warrior kinsmen people another member of Fianna named dermid who in everything i read says he was one of the best lover of women in all the land she saw him and he was much younger and apparently very good looking and she was like you know what that is the guy for me i'm going to run away with him and so they had this big whole flight and different myths vary on whether or not she put a, like a druid bond on him and kind of like forced Dermid to leave with her, or whether he was just like, "Hey, she's hot, I'm gonna go too." And so they ran away together. And then after lots of struggles, Finn finally caught up with them, and Dermid died. And Grania, instead of you know sticking to her guns and being like, "I'm not, I'm not gonna marry the man who was the death of the guy I was in love with," she was like, "You know what, Finn, I'm gonna give you a chance." And then they got married, and so a lot of Irish. People hearing the myth are kind of like, eh, we don't really, we don't love Gráinne. But this takes place way after Finn and Gráinne already got back together. And they, you can kind of tell because Gráinne's a like very, you can tell that Alice Milligan is not a big Gráinne Grania fan. is very bitter. And so they're having a feast in the at the beginning of the play. And Finn is begging his front, his, I think it's his son, isn't it Oshin? Yeah, Oshin is his Oshin is his son. Oshin is one of the... He is known as, like, the bard of the Fianna, so he's really good at, like, making pretty songs and, like, telling beautiful stories. But he's also a badass warrior He he is, yeah. So he's, like, the best of both worlds. And O'Sheen is really upset because his son, Oscar, had recently died. And so there's a lot of, like, family tensions and drama. It's kind of like a soap opera because O'Sheen and Grania do not get along. Because O'Sheen was in love with, potentially. Sophia? I have, like, I – okay (laughs) –
0: no, Oshin was definitely in love with Dermot, okay? Okay, guys? Like, let's just all get that clear. They had a thing going on. There and was some Grania.
1: homosexual t- subtext, especially in this play.
0: Yeah, there is there is homosexual subtext all over this play. <laughs> let's just get that out there now.
1: It's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So, and Grania is kind of like, oh, well, you're just jealous that I didn't run away with you and blah, blah, blah. And Oshin's like, yeah, you're not the one I wanted to run away with. But anyway, so it starts off, you can obviously tell there is some shade being thrown in this family and Porfin. Is kind of stuck in the middle. And then so they're all arguing and bickering, and Oshin's like, I'm never going to sing again because Oscar is dead and I'm so sad. And and then as they are in their middle of their little family dispute, um, they hear music and it's beautiful. It is gorgeous music. And they're looking out the window and they see this beautiful woman riding on a horse through the ocean coming towards them and everyone's like talking about how gorgeous she is and just Quilcha, who is, I love that name. He's another character. He's another member of the Fianna. He's talking and he's like, like the silver white wave, her cloak is sweeping the brown heath, brighter than gold of the strand, her curling locks on foam white shoulders. And he says that she has a lovely countenance and star-like eyes. So this lady is gorgeous. Basically imagine Beyonce. Yes. Beyonce is Sophia's dream cast for yeah. Neve, And that's who this is. This is Neve, And she is basically a fairy princess. She's one of the she- like, in our title. Oh, no, she didn't. And she has come. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. We probably were going to leave that in because that was phenomenal. <laughs> that was great. I didn't mean to do that. But um, Neve has come to try to get a husband. And specifically, she wants Finn because he is the leader of the Fianna and is the most badass warrior of all time. So Grania is really like, oh no, oh no, Finn, don't you go. She's probably secretly a hag and this is just a spell. And so Grania, who has gotten, she's not as beautiful as she once was. It's like obvious in the play that Grania has gotten older. She's gotten older and she's nervous seeing how pretty Neve is, who is literally inhumanly beautiful. Because she's, she, she's not a fairy, human. Yeah, she's not human.
0: I just like had this really awesome realization that if Finn's name is Finn McCool, then his dad's name was literally cool. <laughs> cool McCool. His dad's name was literally cool. Oh, that's muck, true. Because muck means son. Oh, it
1: does. This is amazing. Oh,
0: okay. Like, and then the end of the play, the end of the play, neve is like, fine, Finn, you don't want to leave. And then Grania is all like, yeah, you can't take my man. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and Neve's like, I'm super hot. I can take whatever man I want. And she turns to O'Sheen and she convinces O'Sheen to go with her. And Finn and Grania try to get O'Sheen to stay. Grania
1: very half heartedly. Yeah, she doesn't. Grania's pretty
0: cool if i leaving. She doesn't put in much effort. But then O'Sheen is like, sorry, Dad, but my stepmom's a expletive, Yes, and I really don't want to hang out here while she's around, so I'm going to go with this super hot woman to the island where no one gets old, and all I get to do is, like, sing and chill with this hot lady friend. And it's
1: kind of cool that Oshin is the bard, and he leaves with this woman who enters singing beautiful music, which he says in the beginning, he's like, I've lost my music, because he's so sad.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of poor Oshin, but he gets his music back. He does. And me. And a hot... Girl who's never gonna age. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good deal. It's not a
1: sad ending for O'Sheen. <laughs> no,
0: nope, not for O'Sheen. But possibly for Ireland. Let's yeah. talk about that, Jamie. Let's do our little reading. Let's have a discussion. Okay, we're gonna have a discussion. This is this is the nitty-gritty guys. This yes. is where we get into the need of things. Because let me tell you, when I first read this play, I was like, Yes, this is bomb. Like everything about this is great. The main characters are women, like all of the men are just Like the periphery, and really, the big battle is between Grania and Mm Neve for who's going to go off with Neve. And I was super behind it, but I think I totally misread the play the first time.
1: Well, the first time you read it, you thought
0: I thought Grania was like a symbol for Britain, which is totally wrong. Um, But then again, you know, I like don't have the awesome Irish.
1: Well, no, this is like the whole point is like we were talking about. Like everyone has different readings, and just because. It's not like
0: – it doesn't mean it's
1: wrong. It's still valid. It was inaccurate. Let's just put it that way. But
0: since – What's your reading
1: now? We haven't talked about what it we, – what's We changed. haven't
0: talked about it. I actually have been thinking about it a lot and thinking about the – this is going to tie in so perfectly to the next <laughs> section. Um, the fact that Grania is, like, old is, I think, really important Um because another one of the symbols of Ireland is an the old Sean woman, von yeah. Um, and
1: Very.
0: then there's another female symbol of Ireland, which is called Dark Rosaline.
1: There's a lot of there's a lot of different and Hibernia
0: sim- and stuff. So there's like the young woman version, which you could say would be Neve, mm-hmm. and then you have the Sean von Vacht, the poor old woman, who you could say it could be Grania. And like, I'm gonna be totally honest with you, this is not. Something that I just like magically thought of, <laughs> um I was doing a lot of reading on um Alice Milligan, and I do believe our awesome professor, oh my who gosh, we sh-
1: love, shout oh, out yes. Dr.
0: Steele, who's the best um, and should come yeah,
1: she should just have like a podcast on her own. yeah, she should. she has the best ideas.
0: Dr. Karen Steele is actually the professor whose class we're in, and she is an amazing and brilliant. A feminist scholar who works on Irish literature. And so I was reading one of her essays about Milligan, or maybe it was a chapter out of her book, and she mentioned this connection between Grania and the poor old woman. And I was like, oh, that makes of so course, sense. that makes much more because sense. Because
1: in Lady Gregory's Grania, which is another awesome play, and everyone should read it because I'm so in love with it. Grania basically serves as this when she's younger. This takes place whenever. She and Dermot, like have their epic runaway with each other. Um, she's a symbol of Ireland in that. I
0: think it's one of the things that I loved the most about this play is that regardless of who which symbol of Ireland Neve or Grania is, they are really active. They are. Um, and they have a lot of agency within the play. They're who changes the action of the play, and I think that's really important because Everything a lot of
1: changes when Neve comes in. Yeah.
0: A lot of this this Symbolic use of uh, the female to represent Ireland. A lot of the time, it's of a very like submissive woman that doesn't that needs to be saved. And in this play, like no one needs like the women do not need to be saved in this play. And I think that's awesome. I think that's super feminist. It's
1: actually kind of subversive because O'Sheen is the one who needs to be saved. Yeah, and I the like it. Also, I would there's um the whole women asking for help from invaders normally that's a very irish thing there's this um type of poem or song called the ashleen or the Ashlin. don't know how to it's one of those it's I'd... one of those irish yeah, words, we we have those no irish words. but now. it's basically like a genre of poetry where this beautiful personification of ireland this woman comes in and like asks this the poet or the speaker for help against like the oppressive rule of the British or Oppressive rule of anyone, but it's the British. It's, the Brit- it's always the British If someone is being guys. oppressed, they're being oppressed by the British in Irish literature.
0: Yeah, if there's a bad guy in Irish literature, he's probably
1: British. In Lady Gregory's Grania, one of the bad guys, his name is literally the King of Foreign. <laughs> it
0: is amazing. Yeah. They, sometimes they're not super subtle, but. Mm -mm. They're always genius. They
1: always... And they had to be... The Irish had to be... Not so much in the era we're reading about because the penal laws had been disbanded. But, like, in a lot of Irish literature way way earlier, they had to be super careful because the penal laws that the um, British put on them, like, they couldn't speak their language. They, like, were pretty much, like... They were trying to, like, turn these people British, but they were, like, your second-class citizens, essentially. It was, like... It was really hard for them. So the Irish learned to talk in, like, Metaphor and irony and everything was coded, so it makes it really interesting to read because you're always finding new meanings.
0: I know there's so much symbolism; mm-hmm. it's everywhere. It's great. So let's let's uh, keep talking about
1: the last feast of the Vienna. I had a. I want to posit a theory, and I'm not sure how right it is, but this is the perfect venue for us to do that. Yeah. So O'Sheen could in I since he's the bard, and the bards in Irish in, like, in the history of Ireland are very important. Like, they... The Bards, like, they aren't just, like, guys with harps singing along and stuff. They're more, like, fearsome warriors, like, who were at the peak of athletic abilities. And they, like, memorized all of these different songs and all of these different poems. And so they were pretty hardcore. And I would argue that since the Bards were the ones who, like, kept Irish history and Irish stories and songs, O'Sheen leaving... Could represent, you know, what I'm talking about they're um they're losing their culture in yeah. a sense. That's because definitely
0: what I got out of the end mm-hmm. of the play. Um, I was really, I was really focused on this character of Oshin. I mean, he's great and super, super sassy. Um, mm-hmm. but he's also got like a lot of emotional depth within the play. Mm-hmm. Like he's the one who has like the most suffering, and maybe that's what makes him so interesting because he has kind of like a really sad backstory, mm-hmm. but. The fact that he leaves at the end, I think, is really important because,
1: especially, why he leaves—it's not because he doesn't love Finn, his father, or the rest of the Fianna. It's just because he's sad, and because he can't deal with Granya being there, because she's.
0: A huge B to him. She's literally like, the evil the stepmother. Okay, so let's talk about okay, this is just really rambly, guys. I'm sorry, we're not doing this in a very cohesive fashion, but sometimes that's what reading is like. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the homosexual subtext. Okay. <laughs> let's this is why I feel for Oshin. Because he was very upset that Dermot died, okay? And maybe maybe Dermot's just his friend, right? Maybe um he's just really upset that his best friend dies. But no. Because why would Grania be – she, like, is whispering all of these stories about Dermid and Oshin to Finn, Oshin's dad. And she's trying to poison Finn against Oshin and, like, make Finn not love his son anymore. And, like, what kind of stories is she telling about these two guys that would make Finn potentially disown his son? Uh, I think the answer is pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, he really doesn't like Grania, but I think in this play at least mm-hmm. it's with really good reason because she yeah. is super mean to him,
1: and it can definitely be read like he's throwing shade at Grania, not at Dermid.
0: No, definitely
1: mm-hmm. never. He's never throwing, and shade it's at like Dermot. you know. They ran away together. It takes two. But to tango. It takes two, unless you know the whole druid love spot. Grania threw a.
0: Is that what he, is that what he's referring to when he talks about the love spot?
1: The love spot. So the love spot is um. There's this mark on Dermid's head, and basically he, if any woman sees it, she falls in love, and like all of that. Yeah, so and he does call it. He does Dermot so. of the love.
0: Oh, he did it. Oh, no. so but
1: pretty much it's kind of it's kind of. Ambiguous because Grania might not have been able to control her feelings for Dermot either. Because like
0: everyone who sees Dermot's love swat falls in love with him. That mm-hmm. seems like a really does this useful... complicate
1: your view of Grania a little bit?
0: Man, yeah, it does. Yeah.
1: I don't dislike her
0: quite so much anymore. It's, it's
1: Milligan's Grania. I feel like I mean, she on one hand you could read her, and again I'm coming at this from reading Lady Gregory's Grania first, which where, I haven't read yet, which you should because it's awesome. But the, she in there, she's very nuanced it definitely complicates your view of it like her revision
0: maybe i just uh, maybe i did not close read this
1: closely enough well that was a like a throwaway mythological line like the irish would have known that but like modern readers that's why if you don't understand something when you're reading look it up
0: it's so great when you start looking it up mm-hmm, you go on this like wikipedia click thing where you're just like oh i can't believe this actually is Part of the mythology. Mm-hmm. I mean, Irish mythology is bananas. It's so cool. It's so great. Yeah, that definitely complicates my my view of Grania. Now she's not like the villain of the piece, but like this really complicated female mm-hmm. character who is in a lot of emotional pain herself. And right. maybe I was reluctant to see that at first because neve is so cool.
1: Mm-hmm. We were just as the men in the play were enamored with Neeve for her good looks and beautiful songs. Aww. So were we. That's we definitely were. a rhetorical tool by Alice Milligan. That's Good job, cool. Alice Milligan. Yeah.
0: Milligan. I was totally blinded by Neve's beauty and was like, uh, oh,
1: Grania, is and like poor not Grania cool. with her wedding dresses, his beauty is fading. Oh, gosh, it's just not as not as appealing anymore. I was super sexist the first time I read this. <laughs> no, day. I think that's what you're supposed to be. And just the fact that we're, I don't know, we made. I like it. Mm-hmm. I like it.
0: See this. This is collaborative reading. It guys. is. Look at us. We're doing it. Yay. Um so yeah that really changes i think the play a little bit for me and it makes mm-hmm. it more complicated and a little bit sadder yeah and like better in every shape, shape and it's form it's also
1: kind of i think relevant now because i don't know i always read articles about like older women in hollywood who can't get roles or whatever and they're like we're not young and beautiful anymore and i think there's something really interesting about why is aging considered to be like almost a positive like Men who are aging are considered to be like distinguished and like wise and stuff. Like Finn in here, like he's he's, like super old. He's so old. He's like three hundred years old. Okay, that's an exaggeration, but he's basically (laughs) old enough to have. He is Oshin's father, and Oshin's son Oscar died in battle. So Finn is old enough to have a grandson who died in battle. Yeah, that's real old. And Mm -hmm. and then like. Grania was a lot younger than him when they got married. Yeah. And so, so. I'm guessing she's, like, 30s, 40s right now. Yeah. So she's, like, not she's even old. She's not old. old. So I think – I don't know. I think it's the the fear of aging. And then Neve is never going to age. She's always going to be beautiful. I know.
0: But then, okay, so, like, how does that make you feel about Alice Milligan writing it? Mm-hmm. Are we, like, are we – now that we're seeing a little bit more, like, emotional nuance in Grania, thinking that Milligan is doing this really, really – subversive mm-hmm. uh, discussion about what's valued in Irish women mm-hmm. and how like our initial reaction is like oh Neve's the best and then you see like neve has got, she doesn't have it, she has it easy compared to Grania, mm-hmm. like she really does and I don't know I'm like oh my god is Milligan even more of a genius than I thought? Yeah but at the same time are we just reading, are we just reading back mm-hmm. and like or was, or was the point of this play to get the irish audiences like backing me like i don't know that's really good i think we should look at the ending we should
1: look at the ending yeah let's start with Grania's words Grania says the stage direction is proudly though you are going forevermore Granya alone does not weep oisin's words were sweet to all bitter alone to her
0: the white steed is prancing the foam beneath his silver hooves Oshin, come forth! Come forth to ride over the plumy spray. Oshin
1: goes to her side and turns in the doorway to say, "Warriors of the noble Fianna Eirene, a long farewell from Oshin the Bard to me. Lead me, fairy lady, where the fairy minstrels play."
0: Music bursts out joyously. The warriors throw up their arms and cry, "Oshin! Oshin!" Let's let's think about this. So we're think we we were talking about whether the ending is sadder now that we think about. Granya being really emotionally scarred mm-hmm. from her terrible, terrible life, um, being married to a super old dude she doesn't love.
1: Granya so. feels like she won. Yeah. She feels like she was able to get this guy she did not like out of her house. And her. she says that Oshin's words, her his songs, which everyone thought were beautiful, she was like, they weren't sweet to me. They were bitter to me. And that might be because he kept taunting her with stories about yeah, Dermot. That does change things. Mm-hmm. But again, we don't know much of their relationship before this. It starts in the middle, so we're just... This is great. This is phenomenal. <laughs>
0: because, okay, so she's feeling really happy that he's leaving, and perhaps for very good reason. And in a way, she does get a victory. Mm-hmm. But also... Neve comes in and gets her victory because she gets what she wants too. She gets a Fianna to go with her. So who's the winner here? The women. The women both win. Both of them. Both of the women win. And that is
1: a huge that deal. Is,
0: because like, think about it, especially if we're thinking about the symbolic use of women to represent Ireland, the women both, never win. That's
1: true. These two are both, like we said, different forms of Ireland. Neve is literally
0: like the young, young beautiful, beautiful
1: Irish fairy woman who she's the one who kickstarts she changes all the action in the play. It goes from family soap opera to this, like, supernatural fairy story. And Grania is, as Dr. Steele said, the poor old woman. They both win. I never thought of that. Oh, my gosh. I love great, that. That's great, Sophia. They, both of
0: the women win in a way. Like, if you think, if you've read some, like, Irish literary revival mm-hmm. stuff, and if you've read, like, a lot of stuff that uses the 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 woman as a symbol of Ireland, the woman is always, like, Subjugated Mm -hmm. And like Need saving And like This is so cool That both of the women Win
1: Mm -hmm. I'm a fan Uh, I like it so much Or in other Like in like Kathleen Nehuvahan By Lady Gregory And Yates It was written by Both of them BT dubs A lot of people think Yates wrote it But Lady Gregory it was a collaboration too. Lady think? Gregory literally wrote most of it. Lady Gregory is my favorite. Just, I love her so much.
0: You should see Jamie's face right now. It's
1: glowing. I am with such love a for big fan Green of Lady Gregory. She's fangirling about Lady Gregory. I, <laughs> Lady Gregory. It's I wish, I wish she was alive <laughs> so I could talk to her. Guys, the Lady Gregory, I'm going to, sorry. But she was a folklorist. She spoke Irish. She went out, talked to the people, and she's the one who collected all these stories. Like in her, you can find her like. I think it's on Google Books too, but I got mine for five dollars at Half Price Books. But her folklore collections, like literally all of these writers in the Irish literary revival, are pretty much using her folklore collections for the source material for these stories. So you would think that Milligan's using hers. I would, when did Milligan write this again? Like nineteen hundred, I think. I would, yeah, Milligan probably used Lady Gregory's stuff as source material. And we're
0: gonna, we're gonna like put the actual publication information in the, like, podcast notes. So if yes. it wasn't 1900, I'm sorry. I apologize. Yes. I'm just not going to look it up right now.
1: Yeah. we. Most people <laughs> used – there are some other people, but Lady Gregory's was probably, in my opinion, the best. Oh,
0: sweet. But... So one of the reasons we chose this play to talk about, other than we super, super love it, is that we were really interested in talking about collaboration between mm-hmm. women in the Irish literary revival. But this, this play shows – women in competition with each other.
1: Which women were in the Irish, like, you would think that women focusing on the same goal would be trying to work together, but there were some... There was some fierce competition going on. There was, and sometimes they weren't even working for the same goal, or they wanted the same, they all want, a lot of them wanted nationalism, but, like, in different ways. Mm. It's really nuanced.
0: Yeah, so we thought it would just be, like, an interesting contrast, but this, like... Further reading turns this competition into a collaboration.
1: Kind of, yeah, because they both they both get what they want. They all don't, like again. They like they don't really like speak to each other in the play no. much. Or I mean, maybe like I think Neve has like they don't an, speak nicely to each other. Yeah, Neve I think has like an offhand remark, but like they don't like directly really converse. Yeah, converse. But they both kind of in in a sense work together to get their goal of I mean, O'Sheen leaving. Yeah. Look
0: so it goes from competition to collaboration. And it's a different kind of collaboration, obviously. It's not like them actually working yeah. together. But it's very cool that these two strong women do manage mm-hmm. to be in the same social situation, working towards their separate oh. goals. And even though they're competing with each other, ultimately they,
1: like they, they get their same goal. Yeah, they, they don't get in each other's way. That is really cool. Sophia, hmm. this is blowing my mind a little bit. This is the point of this podcast is to I'm, blow our minds a little I hope, bit. I hope everyone else is as amazed I as we are. love that. I am
0: sure that someone's going to come back and be like, you, you misread everything. But in the meantime, we feel super empowered we after reading this play yet again.
1: Sophia, so we're literally, we are collaborating on this reading of the play. And it was written by a woman who collaborated. And the play is about women who eventually collaborate.
0: We're using that term loosely. We're using collaborate loosely, but Very we're going to go with it. But
1: if we could insert the inception noise, which might be a little <laughs> bit beyond our technological skills. Oh that my would gosh. Be, this is like, this is the dream within is, the
0: dream within the dream, guys. Right, this
1: is reception. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You can delete that. <laughs> no, I'm keeping, I'm definitely
0: keeping that because that was gold. Yeah. Do we have anything else to say about the last season Vienna? I don't think
1: so. I think that was a, that's a really good entry point to talk more about the Sean Von Vocht.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about other ladies collaborating, mm-hmm. getting what they want, sort of. Yes.
1: Let's do it. So like we said earlier, the Sean Von Vocht was this collaborative literary journal from Alice Milligan and Anna Johnston, who, and the fact that these two women pretty much did almost all of the work is extremely impressive because again, it is like a twenty page journal. It's filled with short stories and poems and Essays essays and like all of this it's not just like one kind of content. It's a bunch of different content. And it's very it's it's pretty. There aren't a lot oh, of pictures. Yeah. But it is a very um I think aesthetically pleasing their aesthetic was on point it was and also fun fact for all of you who are like well what's the point of them talking about this literary journal if we can't read it too but you can 2016 is the centenary of the eastern 1916 rising which was you know a huge a huge moment in yeah, irish kind history.
0: kind of a big deal
1: <laughs> Yeats wrote a poem about it but um it's since it's the centenary ireland has been putting on like there's been a lot of like Not a celebration, but more of, like, a commemoration of it. And so a lot of new material has been digitized. And even though it's only February, a lot of stuff has been put out. And, like, just, like, two weeks ago. The University College of Dublin. Yes. They just put the Sean Von Vock, Vocked all of it. And it's, like, really, really good digital renderings of it. Oh, so good. It's It's phenomenal. It's way better than the microfilm (laughs) version we have in our library, which is a pain. But it's all online, and everyone can access it. So if you guys ever get a hankering to read some. Oh, and it's just, like,
0: full of awesome stuff. It's really poetry,
1: short stories. I mean,
0: this is not your boring political magazine, guys. It's not.
1: It's really fun. And I think it's even really accessible for modern readers. Oh, Yeah.
0: Definitely. I was reading it out
1: loud to, like, my mom, and she was like, oh, that's actually kind of cool.
0: Um, yeah. One thing that we forgot to mention is that the Sean von Bach did not run for very long. It ran from 1896 to 1899. But even so, though it's only there for, like, three years and four months, there's so much great content. So it should... was
1: monthly, so it had a good, yeah, like, 40-something. I'm bad at math. But it had a lot of – there's a lot of stuff for you to read. And also, after – it it ended its run. A lot of the readers, I think even the subscriptions, they started enough. They didn't start it, but Arthur Griffith um, started. Who was in a, he, he was in Dublin. I think part of the fact it didn't do so well was because it was in Belfast. But um, Arthur Griffith in Dublin, he started the United Irishman. And so the subscribers from the Sean Van they got the United Irishman after that. Because the United Irishman has a lot of the same content.
0: Yeah. It kind of carried the torch for yeah. for the Sean von Bacht afterwards. But um another thing about the Sean von Bacht is that uh it's super fun to say really fast. <laughs> Just say Sean von Bacht really fast, it's great. <laughs> uh, no. Another thing about it is that even though Alice Milligan and Anna Johnston were like real workhorses and doing so much work for it and like writing so much of the content themselves, they also got a lot of really famous people to mm-hmm. contribute. And even though they didn't have, the Sean von Vogt* didn't have like a huge circulation, it had a very influential readership and contributors. They too, were more I focused think. on
1: the quality of their readers as opposed to the quantity.
0: Yeah. Which is kind of elitist, but you know, that's okay. Because yeah. it worked for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, some of the fancy names of people who wrote for the Sean von Vogt* and also read it were. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our favorites, Maud Gone. Oh yeah, we will be talking about her in a later I podcast. Love-
1: Mod is who, so great. Who doesn't
0: love Mod <laughs> Um And then um, Yates wrote for yeah. it.
1: Um, um, Connolly,
0: yeah, James Connolly. Bunches of other people. We could we could list names forever, but we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was super cool. And one of the things that we did just this week is a bunch of research on the we Sean and Did, fun, Bob, did a, a bunch of reading on it. I so. did.
1: I Jamie. This- Sorry, you might not recognize our voices yet. I studied 1896 to 1897. And I did
0: 1898 and 1899.
1: So that gave us, we got to, we did, we wrote these papers for class, but it was like perfect research for this podcast too. And I think the fact that we both did different years, we got to see, we focused on totally different things.
0: Yeah, we we read the whole run between Mm -hmm. the two of us. Um, We did focus on different things, and while we were talking about our papers yesterday, we realized how great these two things work together. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to have a little bit of uh, another little mini discussion Mm -hmm. about how the two things that we looked at in the Sean von Rocht end up working together. So um, I focused on national unity because that was part of the mission of the sean von bacht it was the main part of the mission some might say during this time in irish politics the nationalist movement had a lot of different factions one of the major figures that had really kept the nationalist movement together charles Stuart Purnell, mm-hmm. had died in the recent years <laughs> um And after he died, there was, like, not any cohesive leadership for the movement, and all these different factions came up, and there was all this bickering,
1: and it was really losing a lot of its strength. Parnell was kind of known, sorry, um, he was known as, like, the uncrowned king of Ireland, and things kind of started to fall apart before he died because he was involved in this adultery scandal where he was hooking up with a married woman. And so, and in a very Catholic Ireland... It would have been super scandalous
0: even Mm -hmm. now and in, like, 19th century Ireland. That was
1: a career ruiner. So
0: there were a lot of these different factions and a lot of the... Some of the nationalists were worried that all this bickering within the movement was taking away a lot of its force and power. Milligan and Johnston were of that mind. And so they really saw the Sean von as a way to promote national unity and especially... In um, the year that I focused on the most, 1898, because that was the centenary of the United Irishmen Rebellion in 1798, mm-hmm. and that was another another of the many failed there Irish rebellions. So, there
1: were so many failed Irish rebellions.
0: These guys really kept at it. They were
1: persistent. Yeah.
0: If at first you don't succeed, try try ten thousand
1: more times. Yeah. It
0: was really sad. But anyway, this uprising. Uh, was really a useful symbol for Milligan and Johnston because it was an an example of an actual event where the different factions within Ireland came together to rise up against Britain. And the fact that it was like a hundred years celebration seemed like a really good opportunity. And in the year 1898, they ramped up their references to the United mm-hmm. Irishmen Uprising, which they had been talking about since the beginning. The title of the magazine comes from a ballad that came around during the, Irishman mm-hmm. upri- the United Irishman I think uprising. they even,
1: I think, um, I don't know if you had in your sections a header with a mm-hmm. quote from it, and yeah. some of them they did. I think they quote that song a lot.
0: Yeah, so... The Irish United Irishmen Uprising was a big symbol for the Shan von Bach throughout the run, but especially during the centenary. Yeah, sorry for that weird interruption and in the fact that we've totally forgotten what we were in the middle of saying last, but someone decided to vacuum so, outside the room we're in. So we had to take a little break, but we're back, and I'm just going to wrap up what I was talking about um, regarding national unity and the Shan von Bach. So, um,. There's a whole lot of mention of the United Irishmen Uprising during this time. But one of the things that I thought was really cool about the issues that I read was the way that it worked to include women in this um movement for national unity. Mm-hmm. And it really like it used some kind of conservative gender roles mm-hmm. to, to argue that, but it also gave women a lot of agency in a time where they really weren't expected to. And it had a lot of examples about ways that women could become politically involved without putting themselves in danger, mm-hmm. whether like their reputation or their their physical selves and One of the things that I loved, and this is kind of the last thing I'm going to talk about is how the ads worked yes. to um to promote this this theme that is kind of present throughout the the sean von fact but they especially during the eighteen ninety eight they were they were selling a lot of like commemorative jewelry and (laughs) handkerchiefs for like remember the united irishmen uprising and um the idea of like buying irish goods as a way to um be subversive and politically active Mm -hmm. against the british was really cool because there were milligan and Johnston were really thinking about actual ways that real irish women Could um, contribute to the nationalist cause in their daily lives. You know, they weren't, they weren't the um, advocates for like taking up guns and stuff, but they were really thinking what actual changes can Irish women make. And I think that's a really, really. It was a really practical. It was really practical and really progressive in a way that we might not have seen as progressive looking Mm -hmm. back on it. But for the time period, this idea that women could affect change within right. the nation was actually really radical, um, even though it doesn't, it may not seem that radical to us.
1: And that actually, um, you talk about the ads and everything, fits in really well with what I'm going to talk about, because another trend in the Schoen von Wacht is the need for education. And that kind of fits in with... Um, so in 1892, so four years before the Schoen von Wacht first ran... Um, Douglas Hyde, who would later become the first president of Ireland, he gave this speech, this lecture to the Irish National Literary Society, and basically it was called The Necessity for De-Anglicizing Ireland, and he was saying that um, he believed that in order for Ireland to become free from British control, they first needed to throw off all the cultural bonds of the British. So he's saying, we can't listen to British music. We can't listen to British, watch British plays. We can't wear British clothes or even speak English. He's like, we need to reclaim our language and our culture. And we need to like, remember, celebrate what it is to be Irish. And he said that the Irish, let me, I'm going to quote, quote his lecture. This is also online too. It's really fun to read. He's really salty. Um, He says that the Irish need to teach themselves not to be ashamed of themselves Uh, because the Gaelic people can never produce its best before the world as long as it remains tied to the apron strings of another race and another island, waiting for it to move before it will venture to take any step itself. So Hyde is saying, we need to have a cultural revival in Ireland. And that really, I think, was the first step to this whole literary revival, too, where the Irish were like, we need to step up our game and we need to write Irish things. And that's connected to like the Abbey Theater, which I'm sure we're going to talk about I think maybe our next podcast or the one after that. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about all of this, the theater stuff later. But for the Sean von Vacht, they their education, they're not talking about just going to school and learning. They're talking about learning Irish things and educating yourself. The Sean Van Vocht really preached that they needed to link together nationalism and education. And that argued that a cultural revival of Ireland, Ireland's traditions, and especially the Irish language, would help the Irish gain their independence. And so a lot of the articles in the paper really are, like, talking about, like, the need for Irish language and to learn Irish again and to teach. Like, it talks about – it, like, talks about teachers in the highest order. And they're like, we cannot do this without the teachers, which I thought was really – Preach. Really cool. And also, like Sophia was talking about the ads, a lot of the ads are for – there's a section at the end. I don't know if it's the same in yours. I'm sure it is, where they advertise for different, like – literary clubs and societies Mm -hmm. and a lot of the ads had sections for irish speaking clubs and a lot of the poetry increasingly as the paper ran a lot of the poetry started to be printed in irish and there was a contest for irish um irish poetry and or writing and stuff which was really cool and also at there was one moment there were a few moments i saw where they would like in poems they would have Irish words, even if the poem was almost always, even if most of it was in English, and at the bottom they would have translations. And so the the paper was really practicing what it preached. They weren't just saying, "Hey, yo, you should learn to speak Irish and help us revive our Irish culture," but they were like teaching people as well, or giving them the opportunities to teach themselves. One of the
0: really cool things that um, happened when we were talking about our papers and our research together was because we read. From different years and when Jamie mentioned that during the years that she was reading she saw an increase in the use of Irish within the, the paper I was like oh my gosh I totally saw the same thing and by the end like the last few issues had whole almost whole pages were in oh, Irish Really? That's yeah so cool. like maybe not a whole page but like a, I saw a couple of pages it was like a column and a half that's awesome yeah it's like a lot of Irish and sometimes it was like not just poetry. It would be like prose in Irish without translation. So I was wondering like... Well, their readership was probably
1: learning more Irish too. And maybe that was, maybe someone wrote in and was like, hey, maybe you should do this.
0: Yeah. And um, we were talking with our professor, Dr. Steele, um, and she mentioned that we should look up when um, Milligan became involved with the Gaelic uh, yeah, League, we which to, we still haven't done, we but we're do going to, um, because it would be really interesting to look at, and maybe some, maybe one of you guys wants to look at when she became more involved with the Gaelic League that was promoting the Irish language, and whether that coincides with the uptick in the amount of um, Irish within the Sean von Because maybe they were writing those sections themselves. Yeah. Go onto the internet and do the research for us, guys, because <laughs> nobody got time for that. <laughs> so it was just really cool to see how both of our completely different takes on the exact same publication ended up really tying together, tying together and feeding into each other because... Um,
1: and it gave us better understandings of, or better readings of our own
0: Yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's really cool to see how... Um, they were really promoting this idea of Irishness through mm-hmm. learning, and that that's the kind of, that they saw this promotion of Irishness and, like, becoming more Irish as a way to bring the country together. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool. Look, so I think that kind of brings us to the penultimate section. It does. I think it does. Which Jamie's going to school us, uh, speaking about learning, Jamie's <laughs> going to school us on this awesome secondary oh, research yes. that she Read that Let seems me it seems like a really good thing to talk about here in our first podcast because it really it really kind of speaks to what we're doing here and maybe some of risks yes. involved so, in doing this kind of research.
1: I so go for in it. the process of in the process of my own research, I've been doing I've been reading a lot of text by women, and I think that's really important. But I've kind of been a little gung ho about saying whether or not a writer is a feminist because. Sometimes these women weren't what we would consider feminists, but it's easy to like read your own views into that. So I found this really, I think it helped me. I haven't really used it for my thesis, but it's really, I think, informed me of the dangers of the kind of work we're doing. And it's called Beyond Recovery, Feminism and the Future of 18th Century Literary Studies. It's by Jean Marsden. And it was published in Feminist Studies in 2002. And it's on JSTOR. If you guys have access to JSTOR, you can find it there. And basically, it's talking about, you know, feminist revival work and how dangerous that can be. And it's kind of saying, like, you know, our automatic inclination as feminist scholars is to look at this woman writer and be like, and, like, try to read into all the details and be like, well, she has the same beliefs I do. And she's a feminist and, like, this is – can be read in this way. And we kind of, like, a lot of the times put our own views of things on there. And we're we're doing this from 2016. We've been – we're living in a society where, you know, gender equality, you know, it's still something that people are fighting for. But, you know, we kind of have it good compared to the women we're reading about in –
0: Yeah. And we have, like, this – way of talking about things this feminist way this vocabulary Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: really wasn't necessarily the same kind of um language that these women would have thought of themselves in and it's kind of an imposition i think yeah to um
1: you never want to put your impose your own beliefs on a writer you want to that's kind of like sloppy scholarship you want to Mm -hmm. uncover what You've got to historicize. Mm
0: -hmm. Jamie was talking about this article, and I thought that was a really important way to start off this kind of project because we want to be careful that we're not looking back on um, women's writing and women's lives and making them fit our ideas. We want to really interact with their own writing um, and think about how life really was for them and what their writing really was doing in the time.
1: And I think close reading which is what we've we've been so lucky to be at a school that like really trains us to read things closely and to like historicize them i think that the that this article is definitely going to inform how we look at things and we're going to try to take what the author is saying not what we want the author to say
0: yeah and i think that in the view of the things that we've read this um, for this podcast, specifically for this episode, that's really important because we've got Milligan and Johnston working together, collaborating, and promoting these ideas that seem feminist to us. And maybe they wouldn't have called themselves feminists, but... We also need to be careful that we're not trying to make everything seem feminist <laughs> or judging certain things as not feminist. Right. When in that time, they could have been. Like we were talking about how the Sean Von Vogt um, was really promoting this idea of agency mm-hmm. within and like political agency within women, which was kind of radical. But at the same time, they were also talking to women about they're very conservative gender roles. Mm-hmm. like, wh- And we can look back on that and we can either say, oh, well, we're going to ignore the conservative part and make it all seem super feminist. Or we're going to ignore the progressiveness of it because some of the stuff was feminist. So we really need to think about how these
1: types of writings were working in that specific time. Definitely, And I think knowing the – because we're still learning. We're still studying all of this. But yeah, knowing the is academic world. definitely, but knowing the political context, and especially in Ireland where everything is so nuanced and complicated, it's really important to know, like, the, to have an understanding of the period you're researching and where these women were coming from.
0: So, if you have a question, you should tweet it to us, and then we'll ask one of the experts about Ireland that we know, not not us.
1: Dr. Steele. Uh, Dr. <laughs>
0: Steele. And we'll uh, start to Steele about the context, and we'll report back to you. We
1: will. We would love if you guys talk to us, because, again, this is a collaboration between us and between the writers that we're talking about, but also between us and you. So thank you, Jamie, for telling us about that
0: awesome article, thank which I'm to have to read. Thank you for
1: letting me talk about it. I can send it to you.
0: So I guess it brings us to the final section. Definitely. Well, we have temporarily, until we think of a better title, um, called The Takeaway, where we're just Mm going to sort of reflect on how this podcast, specifically this episode, kind of changed our minds about some things or made us more curious about other
1: things. I definitely think I have a better, or I think our discussion complicated my reading of The Last Feast of the Fianna, especially... With Grania. Yeah. I think that was the highlight for me for this conversation.
0: I'm coming away from this episode with like a completely different, much more nuanced reading of that play mm-hmm. and feeling like I feeling like we kinda came to a conclusion that really energizes me. Definitely. Um, I, I loved that. I loved that was that great part of the discussion. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening. Um It's you, been great. It really has. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at oh no she didn't at gmail dot com or tweet us at oh no she didn't or follow us on Tumblr, which we recommend you do at oh no she didn't dot tumblr dot com.
1: We're oh no she didn't everywhere. Yes. And Remember you. it's she s-i-d h e the fairy way.
0: So hopefully the conversation doesn't end right now and we hear from you guys and we keep can keep on with this collaboration.
1: Thank you so much for listening.